Well, if you guys have your Bibles today, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going through the book of Romans, and we've gone, come all the way to Romans 7.13. And we're going to go all the way to verse 25, Lord willing, today. And so if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 943 on to 944 today as well. And uh, you're welcome to keep that Bible for yourself. It's our gift to you if you don't have one. All right. There we go. Uh, Let's read together from Romans 7, starting in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But, the very, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As we come to this passage, there are some ways to see it as very, very straightforward and then other ways to see it as not so straightforward. And I think as a young Christian reading this, just reading through my Bible, it just seemed very, very straightforward to me. Probably, I think that that's most Christians' experience as well, is that when you first come to know Christ and you realize, I need to be reading the Scriptures, and you read the book of Romans, you read this passage and you say, I get that. This resonates with me. It's straightforward. It is the experience of the Christian life of fighting against sin while loving God and loving His law at the same time and grieving over that sin. But then... You can also start looking in a little more detail and start finding some things that make you wonder, wait a second, maybe this is not as straightforward as I thought it was. Maybe it's a lot more complicated. And so you see things like, well, how could it be that in Romans chapter 6, he says that we've been set free from sin, and then in Romans chapter 7, he says this thing about being sold under sin. Well, what is that about? Uh, how, how could it be that the Bible says that we're completely responsible for all of our own sin? It's our own fault when we sin, and then we come here, and there's two different verses in this passage that say that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Almost sounds like passing the buck. And, and, and you, you, you say, well, how can somebody have these two different things where you delight in the law in your inner being, and you have this law of your mind that's on one side, but then the law of the flesh and of sin that's on the other side, and you start to get a lot of confusing questions about this passage. 
And so over the years, there have been a lot of different views about this passage. There have been a lot of different ways of interpreting it. And in some places, you'll come to, to somebody who's a faithful preacher who w- would probably preach this passage in almost an opposite way of how I'm going to preach it today, who would say, well, this, this passage is not about a believer, would say, well, this can't possibly be about Paul's present experience as a believer, because if this is what his life was like as a believer, well, then he'd be disqualified from ministry. They might say that. They might say, well, that doesn't go together with the commands of chapter 6, that we are to put to death what is earthly in you and no longer to walk in this way. It doesn't seem to match what it says in chapter 8, where it says the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It seems like maybe, even though Paul's talking in the first person, in the present tense, as though it sounds like this is his current experience, this is what someone else might say, and what at one point in my life I believed because somebody taught me this, is that, well, this is, this is not about what the Christian life is like. This is Paul saying how bad it was to be a legalistic Pharisee before he was converted. That, that he was trying to be good, he was trying to do the law, but, but it just never came together. Well, that view is held by some very, very well-respected, faithful teachers, that even back into church history that we would look at, and some of them we would say, well, those guys are heroes of the faith. But I think it's just more straightforward. <laughs> I think it's just more exactly what it says. And by God's grace, that's also the position of the majority of the Reformed theologians and preachers over the years since the Protestant Reformation, so I feel pretty good about being in their company on this, but I just think it's also what the Bible says. I'm going to explain that a little bit. But all that just to say this, listen, sometimes the Bible is hard to understand, and that's okay, right? And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 said that sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. And he said it specifically about the parts of the Bible that were written by Paul. He says in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in them, and when he says them, he's, he's, he used the term Paul's letters before that, so he's talking about things like the book of Romans. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, there's a couple of really interesting things about what Peter says about Paul's letters there. One is that the apostle Peter says directly of the letters of the apostle Paul that they are scripture. He is aware, as the Bible is being written, that the Bible is being written. He is aware as the Holy Spirit is breathing out the New Testament through Paul's pen and even through his own that the Holy Spirit is doing this, that this is not just a bunch of mere men writing letters that might or might not be important to certain churches, that this is the Holy Spirit of God giving inspired Scripture through their writings. So he says that. But he also tells us right here, sometimes things in the Scriptures even given exactly as God wants them to be for us, word for word, letter for letter, exactly as the Holy Spirit breathed them out, sometimes they're hard to understand. So if you say to yourself, well, the whole Bible is super simple, it's super straightforward, if anybody thinks it's hard, they must not be as spiritual as I am. Well, then you're a whole lot more spiritual than the Apostle Peter is. So I think you probably... A little bit more spiritual than, well, 
I don't, I don't know what to say about that. You're not, you're not as spiritual as you think you are. If you think everything's just straightforward. But at the same time, if you, if you say to yourself, well, sometimes I, I get tripped up. I don't understand everything. I must not be very spiritual. No, it's normal. This is still a supernatural document. And we do know that the scripture is clear in the sense that everything that you need to know for life and salvation and godliness is laid out for you plainly in the scriptures. And what happens is that sometimes there are, according to 2 Peter 3.16, there are those who are unstable and twist things to their own destruction, who want to take the things that are hard to understand in the Bible and make them seem like, well, nobody understands this, but I do. And nobody has ever gotten this in the whole history of the church, but I do. And now come follow me, and I'll show you the real way. That's how most cults and false gospels get started, is through that kind of twisting. But we also are able to say, hey, even if something's hard to understand, we're going to interpret it in light of the things that are easier to understand. All right? And I think that's one of the things that we can do here. And I think even as we do that, as we interpret the things that are hard to understand by the things in the Bible that are easier to understand, I think we're going to see that this is still just a straightforward passage that's describing here is the struggle and the war against sin in the Christian life. And I hope, believer in Christ, I hope that this will be an encouragement to you. Because regardless of whether you have said to yourself, I take this position on Romans 7, or I take that position on Romans 7, or I have never heard anybody say that there are positions on Romans 7, or where you are in that, I know that this is still your experience in the Christian life. And I know that you need to hear this today. I know that you need to hear, it is normal for the flesh to wage war against the law of God that you delight in in your inner being. And I want to encourage you, as I think Paul's encouraging you, as I think the Holy Spirit is encouraging you, not to give up in that fight. To go on, to keep on waging war against sin to the very end. So that's where we are. That's where we are. Verse 13 it's, if I had this to do over, I th- I'd probably include verse 13 in last week's sermon, but I didn't, so that's where we're going to start. And I think verse 13 is showing something of the same thing that the previous verses were showing, which is that the law, and by the law I mean God's rules, the law exposes our sin before we know Christ. Okay, So God can take the law and put it into contact with a sinful unbelieving heart and there's something of an explosive reaction that happens with that. that that's what we saw in, in the previous verses that when the sinful heart that's in love with sin that, that maybe even thinks of itself as righteous that's self-righteousness when it comes into contact with God's rules and that could be God's rules in the Old Testament it could be God's rules in the New Testament anything that God says this is my rule and the sinful heart comes into contact with that, that there is an explosion because it demonstrates this is a sinner. And it can even stir that sinner up to say, I'm going to sin more just to show you. And just because you made a rule against that thing that I never thought to do, I'm going to do it now. Wow. It's explosive. And so here's what it says in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? In verse 12, he had said that the law is good. 
He said that it is holy, that it's righteous, and that it's good. And, and, and we said that when it says good there, it doesn't just mean morally good, but even bringing good to us. It is good for us. And so here's the question. Did that which is good, is, is God's law that's good for us, is that what breath brought death to me? He's saying, when I was lost in my sin and under God's condemnation, was it God's good rules that were bad for me? And he says, by no means. Here's what was bad for me. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. Here's the point. The law of God is good. Sin is not good. And when those two things come together, it's the sin that's causing the problem, not the law. It is the rebellion against God. It's the determination to do what God has said not to do in our, our actions, in our words, or in our hearts. That's the problem. The problem is not that God has said, don't break my laws. Be holy as I am holy. The law is good, sin is bad, and that use of the law for sinners from God is to show that we need a Savior. We call that the first use of the law. It's the, the first, most primary thing that is the reason, or, or I guess I should say the effect, the, the thing that God can take it and use in our lives to do is, is when the law comes in, it shows us you are a lawbreaker. If I were going to take you and judge you by my law, which is what every single one of us deserves, you would be condemned, which is what every single one of us deserves. It shows us that we have no hope of being right with God by obeying rules, by doing things, by being religious. It shows us that we need a Savior. Now, the rules don't tell us who the Savior is. The rules, the law, they convict us that we need a Savior. It's the gospel that tells us who the Savior is. The good news, here is what God has done for you. God has sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. So that's what we need. But the law drives us to that. And so that's what we saw last week, and that's what verse 13 is driving home. Starting in verse 14, we see that the law doesn't just expose our sin before we come to faith in Jesus. The law keeps on exposing our sin after we come to faith in Jesus too. If you, you notice in verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Now, there is a shift here. He was speaking in the past tense, and then he starts speaking in the present tense in verse 14. You see that? We've moved from the past, conviction of sin in Paul's life that's representative of the conviction of sin that every one of us needs in our lives to come to Christ. We've moved from the past now into the present. Christians, you've moved from the past into the present. If you've come to Christ, part of that process is having to come to terms with the fact that you are a condemned, hopeless sinner in the face of God. But then seeing the beauty of Christ, the Holy Spirit making you born again, bringing you in, making you a new creation in Christ, 
giving you a heart now that no longer loves sin but loves God and hates sin. But he says here, I know now, I, we, we know the law is spiritual. The law is good. The law is from God. God's rules are good. God's rules are given by the Holy Spirit. But he says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, I got to say, that sold under sin thing, that's, that's probably the main phrase that makes people wonder, what in the world is Paul talking about? How could the apostle Paul be sold under sin? Haven't, hasn't he just gone on and on and on about how you were slaves to sin, and now you're slaves to righteousness when you've come to faith in Christ? How can he be sold under sin? Well, let me just tell you, I think that this goes together with the things that he says in chapter 6. I think it goes together with the things he says in chapter 8. Here's, here's what I'm talking about. Look, look at, you have to have your Bibles open. Don't, don't raise your hand, but does anybody in here not have your Bible open right now? And if you don't, what are you doing? Open your Bible, okay? Romans 6, verse 12, he said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know what he's saying there? Right in the middle of saying that we're set free from sin, that we're now slaves to righteousness, he says, right there in that verse, he's saying, listen, you who have died with Christ and are risen with Christ, who are set free and are walking in righteousness, you're still in your mortal body. And when he says mortal body, he means body of death. And he's saying here, that body that you're in has passions that it wants to make you obey. He's saying right here, you're, you're going to have to not let it. Uh, this, this, Romans 6.12 is kind of a condensed version of the second half of Romans 7, where there's going to be an ongoing battle between the spirit and the flesh. He, he goes on later in that chapter, and he, he calls this body that we're in the... the uh, this body of uh, sin. And so I think what we have here, as he says, I'm sold under sin, I think he, he's acknowledging, I still have the mortal body, I still have the sin nature of Adam. I've been made new in Christ, I'm a new creation, I have been born again, he's taken away my, my heart of stone, he's given me a heart of flesh, I have new affections. I have a new love for God. I have a new desire to follow after God's law and God's word and not to follow after sin. I have all those things. And I still wake up every day with the old dead man sitting there wanting to drag me back down into sin. That's just, it's just kind of where we are right now. We are in this in-between phase. Now, he's not saying that your flesh is evil. You know how I know that? Because Jesus, because Jesus, <laughs> Jesus came in the flesh. That didn't make him a sinner. But keep in mind, though, he was born of a virgin. He was born without sin. He was born uh, not inheriting the sinful nature that Adam has passed down to the rest of us. The rest of us, we were born in the normal way, and we were born with a sin nature, and I think that's what he's talking about. 
Yes, once you've come to Christ, you have a new self. You have put on Christ. Your identity ultimately is in Christ, and we're not yet resurrected. We're not yet in the presence of Christ. We still have the presence of sin. Even though Jesus has taken away the penalty of sin, and Jesus has taken away that controlling lordship power of sin that was ruling over our hearts before, we still have the presence of sin. I think that's what he's talking about when he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. And believer, I know you know this. I know every single one of us knows this. That we feel that. We feel that. We have those new affections for Christ, and we still feel the passions of the mortal body waging war against our souls. We feel it. We have not rid ourselves of our old sin nature, even as we've been made new in Christ. So he goes on and he, he, he explains, he says, I do not understand my own actions, verse 15. I do not do what I want. By the way, this is a mark of a Christian wanting to please God. But I do the very thing I hate. By the way, that's another mark of a Christian, hating sin, even if it's something that you have found yourself to have done. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, hard to understand. Is he saying we're not responsible for our own sin? Well, there's lots of stuff in the Bible that makes it really, really clear that if you're the one who did the sin, you are the one who is responsible for the sin. God doesn't just throw sin into hell. He throws sinners into hell. He, he says very clearly in the Bible, the soul who sins shall die. So we can't understand this to say, okay, if I'm a Christian and I sin, it's not my fault anymore. It was just sin in me that, that did it, and so the sin needs to be punished, but not me. Well, here's the, here's the reality. Christ was punished for your sins, not you. That's the reality. But I think what he's bringing out here is he's saying, I am in Christ. If I'm going to define myself, if I'm going to say, who am I now? Well, I am a new creature in Christ. That's who I am now as a believer. So how did this old creature stuff happen? And he's, I think what he's saying is that that's, that's kind of the experience that you have. It's like, it's like it wasn't even you because you're new in Christ and how could this happen? It feels like this almost foreign being has dragged you off to sin when you sin. I think that's what he's saying there. It's just that there is this conflict between being new in Christ and still feeling that old tug of the old man, the old self that we are called to put to death on a daily basis, but still rears its head in sin. So what we call this, the sin that dwells within me, this is called the doctrine of indwelling sin, indwelling sin. For a long time, I would hear people here and there make references to indwelling sin, but I had no idea what they were talking about. This is what they're talking about, it is the idea that even when you're new in Christ, that there is still a sin nature that lives in you. There, there is still this indwelling pull to do what is against God's law. To think that for some reason in whatever situation that we're the exception, that it's, it's okay for me 
to follow this passion of the flesh in my mind, in my words, in my actions. That's indwelling sin. Believer, you need to know that even as you are a new creature in Christ, even as you have Christ as your identity, you are clothed in Christ, you are justified by Christ, God looks on you and sees Jesus' righteousness and no longer your sin, even as all of those things are true of you, and even as you are being sanctified and, and escaping from old sins that once felt like they held you captive, even as that's happening, you, believer, as long as you're in this life, you will still have indwelling sin. You will still have the passions of the flesh that wage war against your spirit. It's, it's described in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, Galatians goes on and gives you some great encouragement that you can walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. But we feel that as Christians, that constant thing. One of the ways that it's put in the Baptist Catechism, after it goes all the way through the Ten Commandments, by the way, if you've never read the Baptist Catechism on the Ten Commandments, oh, so fantastic, so good, so helpful. And they'll show you that you're a sinner in ways that you never thought about before (laughs) and convict you and help you to see that your need for sanctification, not just because of what it says, but because of all the scripture references that are included in it. But after it goes all the way through the Ten Commandments, it asks the question, is any man able in this life perfectly to obey the commandments of God? You know what the answer is? And I think this is not just the answer of the catechism. This is the answer of Romans 7. It's the answer of the scriptures. No mere man since the fall is able in this life to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, or deed. It's just another way of saying, yes, we've been redeemed in Christ, but we have indwelling sin. Anybody who thinks that they've escaped sin is fooling themselves. And we have the draw of it on a regular basis And we have the reality of it and the presence of it, whether it's in word or whether it's in our actions or whether it's hidden inside our minds, and we need Christ. So we're new in Christ. We agree that the law is good. We're still in the body of sin. We're still in the mortal body. I I, uh, remember seeing on one of those home renovation shows a few years ago. I don't know if this trend is over now. I don't don't watch anything anymore. Um, But they would... Uh, they, were, they were taking shipping containers and turning them into houses. And uh, if you take a shipping container and you turn it into a house, is it a house? Yes. <laughs> it is a house. You can live in it. You can put a nice living room in it. You can put a great kitchen in there, all kinds of stuff. And yet, it's kind of still a shipping container, too. And it's going to have elements of the realities of a shipping container that, that continue to be there throughout the whole time that you have that house. And, and that's kind of what we experience as Christians. If you are in Christ, are you a new creation? Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a saint? The Bible says, yes, from the moment you believe 
It literally, the Bible uses the word saint about you. And are you a sinner? Yes. Yes. We still have indwelling sin. You might have been turned into a beautiful home, but you're still also kind of a shipping container. And we feel that, and we feel that tug, and the mature Christians that you know are going to know that as well. I, I got to say the. Well, let me let me read you a little bit more scripture before I talk about that. Romans eight ten. This is coming up in the next chapter. He says, "If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness." You hear that? That's the that's the same tension, just summed up in one verse. Although the body is dead because of sin, that's the struggle and the grief that's expressed in Romans 7. But at the same time, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Mm. The way Martin Luther put it is that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. We are both, and we hate the sin that dwells within us, even though it still happens. We hate it. Now, the godliest people over my years in being in church and being a Christian and being in pastoral ministry, the godliest, most spiritually mature people that I have ever known don't think of themselves as godly. And I think you see that here in the Apostle Paul, too. The, the, the most spiritually mature people that I have known are, are, are deeply aware of the way that their flesh still wants to drag them into sin. They, they are humbled by it, and they're more likely, if you get into a personal spiritual conversation with you, they are way more likely to confess a sin to you than to try to put on a show of how holy they are. They're aware of it, and that's part of what's driven them to spiritual maturity. There's others, though, others who are genuine Christians and possibly some who aren't, but will just say that they are, as long as they're professing Christ and showing fruit. But there's others who have obvious sin and walk in pride. And the sin of pride is covering up for them other sins that are in their lives, such that if you come to them and you try to help them grow in Christ, you know, you kind of interrupt all of their announcements about what great faith they have and all of their sidebars that they pull you into about how they pity all these, these other people who aren't as faithful and don't have as great of an understanding as they do. If you interrupt that and try to help them to grow in Christ, they're offended. And they, they're offended that you would suggest that they have any room for improvement in their lives and in their hearts. And they might even call you a legalist. They might deny that their sin is sin. They, they might even tell you that you need to get out of the business of examining their visible fruits because only God is the one who can see the invisible heart, and you don't know me. You don't know my heart. That's a mark of spiritual immaturity. That's a mark of being dishonest with yourself about your indwelling sin, about the reality of the ongoing presence of the mortal body that wants to make you obey its passions. But you know what godly people do? You know what spiritually mature people do? I should put it that way, spiritually mature people. They have been trained, according to Hebrews 5, by constant practice 
to distinguish good from evil. And they want to be discipled. They, they are ones who ought to be discipling others, and they want to be discipled. They want to have someone helping them to grow in Christ. They're likely to come to, to someone and say, I see you as a great example. Can you help me grow in Jesus? Can you help me recognize my sin and to escape from it and to grow in love for God and in love for people? So when you see that in others, when you see that humble spirit where they want to be discipled, they want to be helped to grow in Christ, they are aware of their indwelling sin and they want to fight it. When you see that, that is a gracious gift from the Holy Spirit. And we need to thank God for that. We need to say, God, thank you for doing that gracious work in that person's heart. And if you don't see that work in your own heart, then you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would do that work in your heart to see the reality of indwelling sin in you because it is there. And to be humbled and to seek help, to seek counsel, to seek how can I fight against this sin? How can I grow in Christ? And not consider myself to have arrived, but to be a disciple of Jesus. So that's indwelling sin. And then we get to verse 19 and we start to see the struggle against indwelling sin. This struggle, this war inside us of the Christian life. This is point three if you're following on the back of the bulletin. Maybe you've got the back of your bulletin over here and your Bible open over here. That's what I always imagine that everybody does. It might be helpful if you did. All right. Here's the internal conflict in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You hear that? He's making the distinction. I am new. I am renewed, but I still have this flesh that has sin in it. Nothing good dwells in it. For I have the desire to do what is right. Again, that's a mark of a Christian, but not the ability to carry it out. Still have the weakness of the flesh. He says, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do is not, or that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He said that already earlier. Just want to repeat because he said it again. I think he's talking about the fact that he is still dealing with a sin nature that now feels foreign to him because he's new in Christ. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's one of the key phrases here that makes me say, this is talking about a Christian. This is talking about somebody who has been born again. Those who don't know God do not delight in the law of God in their inner beings. He says, I do. I delight in it in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I got to clarify here, all right? Every once in a while, I, it, it will happen that there's a person who is not a Christian, who maybe they've been around church, maybe they know the lingo, something like that, but they, the Holy Spirit has not converted their hearts. They are not new in Christ. They're not born again. And, and they will come to Romans 7, and they'll say, this really resonates with me because I live a life of constant sin, and I guess Paul did too, so I guess it's okay. You need a little bit of context of the Apostle Paul here, okay? 
The Apostle Paul, as, as horrible as this struggle is, as much as we can relate to it, as many sins as we can attach and say this exactly applies here, Paul must have been involved in that sort of level of horrific sin. Well, we know at the same time that Paul could also come around and say in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. We also know it's the same Apostle Paul that God used to write the letters of 1 Timothy and Titus, where in 1 Timothy 3, it lays out the qualifications for an elder, for a minister of the gospel. And obviously, Paul was not failing to meet those qualifications. And if he were, then he wouldn't be qualified to be writing the book of Romans, right? So, so it has to be something a little different than that. He, he says in Philippians 3 that, that he is, has not already arrived. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So, so Paul, when, when we see this, here's, my, here's the thing that we don't want to happen, okay? We don't want somebody who's not a Christian to come and say, Romans 7 says your life can be full of sin and you're still all right with God, and my life is full of sin, so I don't have to worry about anything. That's not the point of Romans 7. The point of Romans 7 is the war against sin. I'm going to say that again. The point of Romans 7 is not having a life full of sin. The point of Romans 7 is having a life that is full of the war against sin. There is the reality of indwelling sin, but there's also the war against it that marks the life of a believer in Christ. If you are at peace with your sin, you are not in Romans 7. You're in Romans 1, where the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their sin suppress the truth. Guys, if you're at peace with sin, you're in Romans 1, where it says he gave them over to the passions of their flesh. But Christians, we're in Romans 7, where we're aware of our sin, and there is a war. There's a big difference between struggling against sin and being at peace with sin. This is a passage about struggling against sin. We have this internal conflict. This, i got to say, too, this is not about... There, there was this term that God in, invented in the 20th century called carnal Christian. And it partly comes from Romans 7 because in the King James Version that, uh, where it says, I am of the flesh, it uses the word, I am carnal. There's another place where that word carnal also comes up, speaking about those who are spiritually immature in 1 Corinthians 3. And from those words, there were those who came and twisted them into this idea that there were different levels of your relationship with God, that maybe you could be saved from your sin but be a carnal Christian so that your whole life is defined by sin, that there's no noticeable difference between you and an unbeliever, but because you professed faith in Jesus, then you're saved. And that what you want to do is go from being a carnal Christian to being a spiritual Christian by, by uh, going through this extra process where you take sin off of the throne of your heart and put Jesus on the throne of your heart so that once Jesus was only your Savior, even though sin was your Lord, and now Jesus is going to be your Savior and your Lord. 
All right, that's, that's the teaching, and it is junk, and it's not in the Bible, and it leads people to hell because they think, I'm all right with God, I'm just a carnal Christian. All this will just be burned off in the end, and I'll be saved as one who passes through fire. I'm just a carnal Christian. Guys, there is no such thing in the Scriptures as somebody who has Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Jesus is Lord. You don't take him as your priest to do your sacrifices, but not as your king to rule you. He is our prophet, priest, and king. We embrace Christ or we don't embrace Christ. You don't pick and choose from this menu of what of Jesus you want to take. He's Jesus. He's Lord. You come to Jesus. So, when you look at Romans 7, don't think to yourself, oh, okay, this gets me off the hook. I can just live in sin, and as long as I'm torn up inside about it, it's all right. No. This is a war. This is a war. This passage is not a license to end the war against sin. This is a passage about having an ongoing war against it. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again because it's just one of those things I like to talk about. When you hear people talk about struggling with sin, unfortunately, probably nine times out of ten, they're not talking about struggling with sin. They're talking about committing sin. They're talking about disobedience to God. Struggling with sin is what Jesus did such that he never committed it. Such that we have never struggled against sin to the point that Jesus has. That's what Hebrews 12 says. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood as Jesus did. Jesus didn't have a sin nature that he was struggling against or else he would have not been able to be our Savior, but he was resisting sin. That's what his struggle was, is in resisting, overcoming every temptation, doing what was just and right, all the way to the point of shedding his blood for us on the cross so that he could be our Savior. In your struggle against sin, says Hebrews to you and me, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This description of this internal conflict in Romans 7 is a description of warring against sin, struggling against it. Let me just say this. If you, if you have a habit, let me, okay, I'll put it at a point. If you came to Christ and in your coming to Christ, you realized drunkenness is sin. It's dishonoring to God. I need to leave that behind. But then since then, you have fallen off the wagon and you've been torn up about it. And, and you're seeking to follow faithfully after Christ. That, yeah, that's struggle against sin. Yeah. On the other hand, if you say to yourself, yeah, you know, I, I go out, I get drunk, I have to call an Uber because I can't drive home. What's the big deal, legalist? You're not struggling with sin. You're not struggling with drunkenness. You're at peace with sin. That is a spiritually terrifying place to be in. You, you could apply this to all kinds of other sin, too. You know, if men, if you, if you deeply regret looking lustfully on a woman who's not your wife, and you're pleading with God to forgive you, you're, you're seeking the Scriptures, you're doing what Job says, to make a covenant with your eyes not to look and to gaze upon a virgin, 
not to take that second look again. You're, you're, you are seeking to kill the sin in your life, confessing it to your brothers in Christ, putting stuff on your phone, putting your computer out where people can see it. All, I mean, making sure that this is going to get out of your life. Yeah, that is struggling against sin. But if you are putting up posters of women and you're lining up to take pictures with cheerleaders after the game and you're not bothering to check the content rating of the movies and the TVs that you're about to stream, that's not struggling with lust. That's being at peace with it. That's just outright disobedience. You need to get into Romans 7 if that's where you are. You need to start hating your sin. You need to start realizing it is waging war against me, and I need to wage war back against it too. We need to, to do that. Um, you know, when you have a patient who needs a heart transplant or another organ transplant, sometimes it, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but uh, we, we all know this, that sometimes it goes better than other times, and sometimes the body reacts differently to that organ than, than at other times. And, and when somebody's able to get that organ... It is a life-saving thing. But, but there can still be times when the body says, this is foreign. We, we, the immune system says, I need to attack this. And there can be pain. There can be struggle. And, and the proper response of that patient is not to give up. And the proper response of that patient is, is not to say, okay, this is, this is just how it's going to be. I guess I'll just die. It's to say, no, I, I need to take the proper medications, I need to eat the proper foods, I need to get the proper exercise, I need to do what it takes for my body to work well with this organ. When you get a new heart, Christian, when God makes you born again, you get a heart of, of flesh to replace your heart of stone, sometimes your flesh is not so comfortable with it. And it's weird. But you don't then say, okay, I guess I'll just give up. And you also don't say, well, I guess this heart's not really mine. I guess nothing really happened. I feel bad. Maybe that transplant didn't really happen. No, you say, I'm going to keep on waging the war. I'm going to do what God has said for me to do. I want to use spiritual disciplines and the means of grace. I, I was talking earlier about those most spiritually mature, godly people that I've ever known and that probably you've ever known too, a lot of the same kinds of people. You know what they do? on a regular basis, just what they're actually doing with their time and their, their energy, they are guarding on their schedules their time in the Bible. They're guarding on their schedules the time in prayer. They are guarding on their schedules the time in church. And very rarely, only on Sunday mornings, more often every time that they can get into church, you know why they're doing that? A lot of people look from the outside and they think, that person must do, be doing that because that's just kind of the kind of person that they are. That's just a, that's a godly person, and I'm not like that. I don't feel like that. I'm, I'm just not the kind of godly person who, who uh, just thinks that the, the thing that I would enjoy most tomorrow is to wake up an hour early to spend time in the Bible and prayer. That person must really like that, but boy, I'm, I'm just not quite that holy. Do you know that those people don't feel like that either? Do you know that they have the same indwelling sin? Here's why they're doing that. It's not because they just are holy people. It's because they're deeply aware that if they don't do these things, that their indwelling sin is going to drag them off. 
that they're going to be back in sin and misery over that sin, and they have learned through constant practice to, to recognize uh, good from evil, and they know, I need these spiritual disciplines, or I'm going to be in trouble because I am not holy in myself. That, that's what happens there, guys. You need to be waging that war, because if you don't wage the war, it's going to come after you anyway. You are in the war. Don't give up. Here's what John Owen says. He says, he, John Owen, by the way, he, he wrote, in 1600s, he just wrote some fantastic books about resisting sin, putting sin to death, about what indwelling sin is. But he said this, he that swims against the stream finds it to be strong, but he that rolls along with it is insensible to it. You know what that means? If you're not fighting sin... You may think to yourself, this is an easy life. I can just roll along with it. But if you're fighting against sin like the Apostle Paul was and like the spiritually mature people in your life that you know are, they feel it. They feel that fight of sin. You are in it. You know I have to wage war and do battle against the flesh, against the sin that would crop up in me. Uh, But you know what? From all of this, the law keeps on showing that we're sinners and we need deliverance. As we get to verse 24, I just want to remind you, we're in the middle of a big chunk of the book of Romans that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 8 that is all about assurance of salvation, right? And sometimes when people experience the kind of stuff that Romans 7 is talking about, that kind of war against sin, they begin to think, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe if God has not miraculously removed every sinful desire from my flesh, maybe I've not been born again. That's not the case, guys. That's not the case. You will continue until you are dead or Jesus comes back and you're finally standing in the presence of Jesus. You will continue to have the desires of the flesh that are sinful that you have to beat back, that you have to beat your body into submission, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, lest after preaching to others that he himself would be disqualified. We have that going on. It is not a sign that you're not a Christian. It's a sign you know that you need to walk with Christ. But there's deliverance. Here's the deliverance. The deliverance is not going to be from your flesh. It's not going to be from the law. What's it going to be from? Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Do you ever feel that? Your pastor does. Maybe that means I need to be fired. Or maybe it means we need to go to Jesus. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you feel that? Here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where the deliverance comes from. It's not going to come from the law. It's not going to come from doing better. It's not going to come from the fact that you have waged the best battle ever against sin. Here's where your deliverance is. God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, your deliverance is in the person of Jesus Christ, not in you. It's not in you. It's in Jesus. And this is deliverance that's full and complete. 
And just a reminder at the very end, we're going to keep on needing this deliverance to the end. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Christian, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We're delivered from the power of sin. Its lordship over us is no longer there. We are not yet delivered from the presence of sin. And you need to know that you won't be delivered from the presence of sin in this life, in this age. But you will be delivered from the presence of sin by God through our Lord Jesus Christ when you stand in front of him complete. When you have finished the race. And boy, we long for that. I know, Christian, I know you long to be free from all sin. And it's going to be the case when you're looking face to face in the Lord Jesus. But until then, we have this war to fight. And as we see that, that flesh rising up, that sin that we would find ourselves in, here's what we're to do. We're to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. To throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. When Judas sinned, he had false repentance. He might have been able to say something like Romans 7 in a false way to say, boy, I sure feel that sin. Boy, it sure is tearing me up inside. But what did he do? Did he throw himself on the mercy of Jesus? No. He threw himself on a rope, thought that maybe his own death would be what would pay for his sin. Slipped into the fires of hell forever. When Peter on that same night, sinned against Christ by denying him outright three times. You know what Peter did? He wept bitterly, and he threw himself on the mercy of Jesus. And he was restored. And he received the gift of the Holy Spirit 50 days later. And he led the early church in Jerusalem, and he preached the gospel in power. Because you know what happened? He, he could say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he could say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we have to keep doing too. We're going to close and respond with a song that we, we sing the song every once in a while. And I, I, I can't remember if I've ever gotten to tell you what this song is about. This song was written uh, as an imagining of what it would be like if the Pharisee in Luke 18 repented and threw himself on the mercy of Christ. You may know the story that Jesus told that there was a Pharisee that came to, to the temple to worship and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he told God, thank you that I am not like all these other sinners. Thank you that I do this and I do that and thank you that I'm not like this tax collector standing over here. And then he just walked off. And then the tax collector, a notorious sinner, came in would not lift his eyes up, had his head bowed down because he was humbled by his sin. And he said to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that it's he who walked away justified, walked away forgiven and right with God that day, and not the Pharisee who thanked God that he wasn't a sinner. But this song is, a, is an imagining. What if that Pharisee repented? What if he were saved? And that's the position that I hope that we will be in. Not to come along and to say, oh, I don't struggle against sin, but to say, I have a massive war of my own flesh that wants to drag me down to hell, but God have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus. We thank you that wretched men that we are, 
that you are the one who will deliver us from this body of death. We thank you, God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray that this would be the case for each and every man, woman, and child here to look to Jesus, believe, be saved, and to be able, after that, to wage war against the flesh because Jesus has paid it all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.